in your chair Bibles there, or if you've brought one, you, let's go to the scripture. We're going to go to Second Chronicles, like we do every week. Um, let's go to Second Chronicles. I think the page number should be up there, and uh, let's go there together. Second Chronicles 34, verse 14 through 22. So while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord, likely the first five books in the Old Testament. Hilkiah finds the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. And Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Basically, he's saying, we're doing what you told us to do. So anything that comes after this, just so you know, we're, we're, we're doing the right thing. Okay, he wants to kind of cover his bases here. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. This is an act of grief, maybe even of repentance. And he gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahakam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant, go and inquire of the Lord for me, for the remnant in Israel and Judah, about what is written in this book. The king's supposed to know what to do. He doesn't know what to do. So he passes it off to these other folk and says, go find out what do we do now with this book. Verse 22, Hilkiah and those the king had sent with them went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath. So the men have no idea what to do, and so they go and ask a woman. This is a great moment in scripture here. Okay, the king, all of the professionals is like, we have no idea. We're out of options. What do we do? Go ask Huldah, okay? There's lots of babies being born. There's just another option for a young girl coming into the world there. Hulda, H-U-L-D-A-H. So what, what's the story here? Well, the Bible is lost. Somehow, along the way, it has been neglected, discarded. It's lost for generations to the point that it's, it's in the back of a closet. <laughs> Dust on top of it. It's... It's buried. Sometimes something essential gets lost along the way. Sometimes it's possible for the even the really important things to get lost. And so what's needed is an act of recovery and rediscovery. What's needed is to remember. This movie, Memento. So this is year 2000. Just curious, anyone, anyone seen this or remember it? Okay, yeah, a fair amount of us. It's a great movie, not for family time, but, uh, you know, just watch it on your own. But um, 
So this is a story of a man seeking to avenge the homicide of his girlfriend, but due to a head injury, uh, he's having a hard time. He's got a condition called enterograde amnesia. And so he sets out to conduct his own investigation about what happened to his girlfriend. But he's trying to do that without short-term memory. So every day he wakes up, he's starting again. He's starting over. He's always working from a blank slate. And so in order to figure out what happens, he writes all over himself. He actually tattoos things on, on the one arm. Fact number one is tattooed into, into his body. He imprints the truth into his skin so he won't forget. And he takes Polaroids of people and places and he writes on them. And he does whatever is needed to piece together answers to the, the most important questions like, first of all, who am I? Where am I? And what just happened? And in order for him to find answers to that, he's doing whatever's needed. And yeah, so at this point, you may be going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, think, spoiler alert. Thanks for telling the whole movie. And I'd just say, hey, 2000, year 2000, is 19 years. I think at this point, it's on you, okay, to see the movie. So basically, that's the movie. But he, he knows he cannot move forward without moving backward. He knows this. He knows that his future is going to be found in his past. And the only way he's going to access any of that is through memory. And so Memento highlights the importance of memory, the, the significance of remembrance, how essential it is to remember. And so when we look at the scriptures, what we see really are people acting like this character. This is a tradition of memory. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6. This is a very famous passage, the Shema. Page number should be up there for you. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. So this is the whole point. This is a vision, the vision, flourishing, a, a flourishing life. Verse 3, hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land, flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. This sounds like memento to me. Do whatever you need to do. So tattoo this into your soul. Put it where you're going to see it and you're not going to forget. Because the most important thing is to remember you got to remember, a flourishing life comes through knowing the story that you're part of, which informs what your identity is. And, when, and you stay connected to all of that through remembrance. And the natural flow of life is towards forgetting and neglecting and discarding. And so you're going to need some counter practices that are going to help uh, keep this in front of you. Like 
reminding and writing and retelling and tattooing. Uh, let's go to Psalm 105.5. There's a whole genre of psalms that are remembrance psalms, psalms of remembrance. And so Israel has in their songbook uh, songs that are pure history, just telling their story back to themselves. That's an interesting genre of music. Uh, they got built into the, the hymnal is songs of remembrance that retell Israel's story. And one of my favorite uh, words, the Hebrew word for testimony is, uh, tell the story so God can do it again. It's this, this way of, when, it's not just historical fact, but when we look to the past, when we retell the story, it revives it. We remember and, and it's revived. And so Psalm 105, 5 says, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. And we just see this all throughout the Psalms. It would be an interesting study just to try and trace how many times the call is to remember. Let's go one more scripture here in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15. So here Paul is talking to uh, some very early followers of Jesus. Very, very early. And he's telling them to remember. Chapter 15, verse 1. says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And what is that? This is what he lists. That Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters all at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. It's a polite way of saying they've died. And then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all he appeared to me also as to one normally born. So what is Paul? doing there he's saying I want you to remember your story because it's going to shape your identity and then he goes into all this detail you know I, what I passed on to you of first importance was remember that Christ died for our sins this was according to the scriptures and, and then all of these different ways to verify that he's like if, if you want to ask there's still some people living that saw him resurrected so that's interesting and so we could just summarize it in this way. When we, what we see in Scripture, the movement would be this. Identity is informed. If, if you want to know who you are, you have to drill down into what story am I a part of. And the way you access that is through memory. Identity, story, or memory. Or, or maybe a more lovely way to say it is this. Walking backward into the future. I love that phrase. Walking backward into the future. You're looking at the past, and that's what orients you into the future. My uh, oldest kids have introduced me into a, a genre of YouTube videos that I have never heard about, and that is unboxing videos. Anyone know about unboxing videos? Okay, there's some shame as the hands go up. Like, I've wasted way too much time. So, unboxing videos, if you may know, uh, this, there's a very standard formula, okay? You have someone open something, and then you record that as they're unboxing it. And then you watch their reaction. 
and as they talk about it. Now, people unbox everything from tech to toys, food to fashion, all kinds of things. And I have to admit, there's something slightly captivating about watching someone, this is embarrassing to say, about someone opening a new product that you haven't seen on camera and to kind of experience it vicariously. It's a weird phenomenon, unboxing videos. And I think it, it kind of reveals something. Many of us have grown up in a culture of new. We're wired for perpetual newness. New apps, new platforms, new entertainment, new trends, new profile pics, new news. And so we've been led to believe that new is always better. New is flashier, more fun. New is where it's at. Therefore, old is necessarily unreliable, boring, out of touch. No one's making unboxing videos of something they found in grandma's attic. That, that just doesn't happen, right? We love the thrill of newness. And, and if we were to be honest, I, I would assert that our relationship to the past is, is a little bit odd. At best, we often uh, relate to the past in a romantic way, in a nostalgic way. You say, like, what do you mean? We're totally wired for newness. I love the past. Like, I totally love old things. I antique, okay? I, I backpacked Europe. I love old buildings. I, when I karaoke, I only sing old songs. Like, I only sing songs from the 80s. I love old things. And so it's this nostalgic relationship to the past. At best, I think. And at worst, it's just kind of like this disposable relationship to the past. We disregard it and discard it. And so Walter Brueggemann says, our consumer culture is organized against history. There's a depreciation of memory and a ridicule of hope, which means everything must be held in the now, either an urgent now or an eternal now. So you see these two very different ways of being, walking backward into the future versus unboxing crap into the future. But they're very different. They're different orientations, different paradigms of where to see, like, where's the good stuff? How will I find our way? Where, where is the thing, the wisdom that I need? I, certainly then I will unbox it. And, and you add into this paradigm uh, postmodernism, which most of us have just, that's the water we've swam in for the last half of the second, uh, the second part of the 20th century. One author said postmodernism is xenophobic to the past. We have a broken relationship with history. If you've grown up in Protestantism, uh, Robert Weber says, we are a succession of breakaways with a constant history of starting over again without attention or respect for our parental history. So if you've grown up in a Protestant tradition, usually our view of history is the first century book of Acts, and then it skips to the 16th century, Reformation, right? And so if, if you've been in that stream, and then and you add in hyper-individualism, and all of these you know, many more things form this cocktail, I think, of, of leading to lives that are dislocated, rootless, ahistorical, and full of amnesia. It's because I, I, I don't, you know, you, you, it would be an interesting question. Identity is such a topic of the day. And how is our, our uncertainty around identity connected to our story? And how is that connected to our memory? Our sense of connection to the past. As I keep talking about her, but I'm not over her. I love Mary Oliver. 
And uh, I was reading her book, handbook on poetry this week. And it doesn't matter if you're not into poetry. Take whatever discipline you're, you're in. Um, she's, she's talking about the importance of reading uh, dead writers. Make, make sure you're reading uh, old stuff. And she says, you know, you may want to argue that since you want to be a contemporary poet, you do not want to be too much under the influence of what is old, attaching to the term, the idea that old is old hat. It's out of date. And so you imagine you should surround yourself with the modern only. It is an error. Like 80-something lady telling you, listen, okay? It's an error, okay? And then she says this. The truly, next slide, the truly contemporary, creative force is something that is built out of the past but with a difference most of what calls itself contemporary is built whether it knows it or not out of a desire to be liked it is created in imitation of what already exists and is already admitted there is in other words nothing new about it to be contemporary is to rise through the stack of the past like the fire through the mountain only heat so deeply and intelligently born can carry a new idea into the air and so, again, it doesn't matter if it's poetry or if you're working with fashion or with words or you're an engineer. What she's talking about is a regard and a respect for what's come before. You've got to know the tradition. You're always coming partway through the conversation. And so it would be good then to listen to know what's happened before you. She's talking about if you want innovation, then you need tradition. Okay, so if you're wondering where we are in the sermon, that is the introduction, and the, the, the rest is going to be quicker, but if you're just saying, what, where are we going here? Okay, that's all the introduction to the Apostles' Creed, and um, we're, we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed. I don't know if you saw this moment. There's a lot of Trumpian news, this, but during uh, the funeral of... Uh, the late President uh, Bush, all the former presidents and their wives stood and recited the Apostles' Creed, everyone except for President Trump and Melania. And so this sparked a minor controversy, which I thought was kind of odd. People thought, like, why didn't they say the creed? Like, well, were you, did you expect them to say the creed? Why should they say the creed? There's the assumption of like, well, it's the most important. It's the essential thing of the Christian tradition. Why weren't they saying the creed? And I think it really just kind of raises, uh, I think, some good questions like, well, what is uh, one's relationship to this creed? I'm curious, how many of you grew up with the Apostles' Creed in some form of saying it, say, on a Sunday morning? Okay, did any of you have to study it? Did you, if you had a catechism class or some of you had to study it and look into it? Yeah. I won't ask you to put up your hands this morning, but how many of you, how many of you felt like a little flutter, your heartbeat start to go up when you realized we were talking about the Apostles' Creed? Okay. It, it, it's, it, it's an interesting thing to consider. What, what, how do I relate to creeds? I'm, I'm, I haven't even thought about it. May you say, like, aren't creeds actually part of the problem? Like, creeds lead to division, not to unity. 
or, or creeds like relics? Well, how should we relate to that? So lots of questions that we'll uh, come in with as we look at this. But for the next while, we're going to spend some time looking at the Apostles' Creed. And just, just as a little bit of a plug, I think this little book is fantastic. Uh, it's called the, the Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism. We've got a couple copies at the info desk if you'd like one, 20 bucks. I think this really um, devotional and theological writing in an accessible way, I think it's, I think it's fantastic, um, a resource. So if, if you are one whose heartbeat picked up, I just recommend that. And even if you're one who's very skeptical, I recommend that to you as well. But just for today, uh, we want to look at three questions. Where did the Apostles' Creed come from? What is it? And why does any of this matter? Okay, so this is what we are going to look at as we try to walk backward into the future. Let's, uh, let's hear the creed. Let's, what are we even talking about? If you'd like to say this along with me, you're welcome to. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, Okay, well there it is. I, I hope there might have been a, a word or a line or two that sparked curiosity or wondering. And in the coming weeks, we're going to spend our time with this and look at it and uh, excavate it a bit. So first of all, where, where is this coming from? And what's the history and the background on the Apostles' Creed? It's been a very uh, common legend that uh, each of the 12 apostles wrote one of the lines. Okay? And so there's a guy named Rufinus Aquilia. This is 4th century. And he put out this theory that the, the 12 apostles gathered in one spot and under the Holy Spirit each chose one thing for consideration they kind of um, bundled that all together and then sent it out to the churches as this is the core doctrine that you need to focus on. And, and we know that that's really not the case. How do we know? Well, there's, there's no evidence that it was actually written by the apostles. Um, and, and it's highly likely that a form of this creed goes back even as far as 40 or 50 years after Christ. Certainly by year 200, Tertullian refers to what's called the Old Roman Creed or the Roman Creed, which is really identical to the Apostles' Creed. And, and by the 4th century, we're seeing versions of the Apostles' Creed. And what's interesting about the, the history of this creed is it's so tied to baptism. And this phrase, do you believe, do you believe, which if you noticed... The, the Apostles' Creed is in this threefold format around belief. So how did baptism work? I want to describe baptism to you. This is from uh, a third century document known as the Apostolic Tradition, which if you can read all about it in a book called On the Apostolic Tradition by Hippolytus. 
Okay, very familiar with him. Um, so baptism. Here, here's this is this would be how ancient baptism would work. So on the eve of Easter Sunday, a group of believers are up all night. This was the practice. You stay up all night. Uh, an vigil of prayer. Uh, some scripture reading and some last-minute instruction. But up until that point, likely three years, three years of instruction. So when the church first started, we read about this in Acts. Peter or someone preaches. People hear the gospel and say, I want to follow Jesus, and they get baptized right away. And that worked really well for people who grew up in the Jewish tradition. They knew the story. They knew about the Messiah. But as soon as the gospel started going out to Gentiles, to pagans who didn't have the story, the church said, oh, how are they going to get to know the story? How are they going to know the essence of this? I guess we better teach them. And that started a process called catechism. And, and it was very robust, often three years. And so, three years, that, you've got that night, the last bit of cramming, the last bit of uh, receiving that morning, you'd hear the rooster crow. And these group of people at dawn would be led out to a pool of flowing water. And they would remove their clothes. And the women would let down their hair and remove their jewelry. They'd renounce Satan. In some of these ancient liturgies, there's actually a spitting. I, I like how visceral that is. Spitting, like I renounce Satan. And then they're anointed from head to foot in oil. And they're led then into the water. And they're asked a question. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And they reply, they reply, I believe. And they're plunged down into the river and raised back up again. And then they're asked a second question. Do you believe in Jesus, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and Mary the Virgin and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was dead and buried and rose on the third day, alive from the dead, and ascended in the heavens, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead. And again they'd confess, I believe, and then again they'd be plunged and brought back up. And then a third question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And a third time they cry, I believe. And the third time, they're immersed. And when they come out of the water, they're led back. They're, first of all, anointed again with oil. They're clothed, they're blessed, and they're led back into the assembly of believers where, for the first time, they share in the Eucharistic meal. And then finally, they're sent out into the world to do good works and to grow in faith. And so this is how baptism was described here in the third century. And so this is the soil out of which the Apostles' Creed came from. This is where it came from. So what it, what's it for? Well, we've already alluded to that, and the first thing it's for is this curriculum. Okay, It formed the basis of this training for new uh, believers, new seekers. And, and so often what would happen was the people who were learning the Apostles' Creed, they would memorize it. They would memorize the creedal formula, and they, they would receive instruction on its meaning. That way, it was internalized so it could never be lost or taken from them. And that way, all believers, even those who were illiterate, would have a key to know how to interpret Scripture, and they would have like the skeletal structure of the biblical, structure of the biblical story. So the first thing the Apostles' Creed is is curriculum. Second thing it was was story. They'd see scripture as a unified witness to one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
see the created world as good, as the domain of God's activity. That God creates the world, becomes incarnate in it, and will ultimately redeem it fully in the resurrection of the dead. And then the third thing that it, that it is, is allegiance. By, by getting to confess, saying, I believe, is a way of saying, that's my story too. I believe, I'm putting, I'm putting all my chips in, I'm going all in, that this w- will also be true of me. It is a way to be linked with the story of Jesus. And the whole nakedness thing in the ancient baptism thing is, is interesting. It's not one I'm going to argue that we bring back into our practice. But it's interesting that you bring nothing with you. Just your body and your voice. And that you take off the accessories. And there's nothing, it's just you. And that's where Christ meets you. And in that place, you're able to express allegiance. I remember talking to a friend who had come back to church after many years of not being in church. And he said the, the, the strangest thing, but also the thing he most craved, he said, was being in a room with other people and standing up and through songs and prayers, giving his allegiance to something. That was his word, allegiance. And he said his kids would look up at him. They're like, this, we don't do this. What are you doing, Dad? You, what, you're saying this stuff too? You're singing it. And he said he was so happy that his kids was, were watching him give allegiance to something outside of himself and outside of their little family. So the creed is, is also a point to talk about our loyalties, to not only say what what's story am I part of, but saying, yeah, that is my story. Like a one author says it, in reciting it each week, we rehearse the skeletal structure of the story in which we find our identity. Its cadences become part of who we are, and they function as rival cadences, sometimes doing battle in our imagination with the cadences of other pledges that would ask for allegiance and loyalty. So three things the Apostles' Creed is, curriculum, story, and allegiance. The Apostles' Creed is, of course, not the only creed to come into existence in this period of the early church, but it is the oldest and the simplest creed. And it is the creed that all the main branches of the Christian tradition agree on as being authoritative. Okay? So, why, why are we, why is artisan looking at this? Why, why does this matter? Why do we want to look at the Apostles' Creed? I'm going to give you five very short reasons why. First one is blind spots. We need the wisdom of the communion of saints. We need a a broader perspective than our own cultural moment. C.S. Lewis says, every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. So it's important to be... But by looking backwards, one of the reasons we want to look at this is to say being faithful is more important than being novel. Okay. Second reason of why this is important, uh, you could say it this way, you're never the first and you're never the last. Often, uh, as a pastor, when I meet with people who are done, done in many ways, done with God, done with church, done with this history. And we'll get into this because when, we, when you walk backwards in the future, when you face history, when you face the Christian tradition, you're receiving blessing, but you're also receiving a lot of brokenness. So to be part of this tradition requires enormous amounts, I think in our moment, a lot of repentance and ownership for colonialism, for racism, 
That's part of our, our, our moment is to really, if we're going to own the tradition, own all of it. But when I meet with people who are done, they're often done because of an experience of pain. And that experience of pain causes them to feel alone. Uh, it's isolating. And so one of the benefits of walking backwards into the future is to realize you're not actually alone. You're not the first to experience what you're going through. This may be personal to you, but it's not unique to you. There are others. So you discover the desert mothers and fathers or the medieval mystics or some of the reformers or maybe just your grandparents. You you discover stories that are older than your moment, older than this week, and you go, wow, I guess I'm not the first and I, I won't be the last. So what we're talking about is developing roots that will nourish and resource the life of faith in you through significant storms. We're talking about finding deeper streams to swim in. I I remember when I became a follower of Jesus, I moved to Texas, and I found myself in a charismatic house church. So uh, Sunday morning, church service, at least three hours, multiple sermons, um, lots of passionate prayer, and I, I loved it. I loved it. It was free. There was prophetic words. Sometimes people were speaking in tongues. There was healing. I loved it. And then I moved back home and I found myself at a Lutheran Bible school. And I hated it. It All these creeds, liturgy, singing out of books. Nobody has their hands in the air. It's like nobody's talking about their heart here, their love for God. I hated it. I thought, this is dead religion. Dead religion religion. No freedom in this place. And then a thing happened to me where my life fell off the rails. I've talked about this many times. Uh, a season of pretty significant mental illness. So I was no long, I had no longer any emotions for God. I had no passion. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it going in worship. And so to discover that I could hitch my wagon up to a train that had been going on for a thousand, two thousand years and did not require me to animate it, that I could hitch my wagon up to this train and pray Kyrie Eleison and find words that go way, way back and I could just like be carried by the stream was extremely healing for me. You're not the first and you're not the last. There's something older than my present moment. The third reason uh, is, is some words from Paul. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch your life and doctrine closely. That would be an interesting question. How much does my doctrine consume uh, my, my limited attention? Paul's saying, notice what it is that you actually believe. Or think about your thinking. I think in this, this moment, in what many people are calling a post-truth era full of fake news and misinformation, we're discovering that fake news and misinformation can actually shape elections. And the reason they can shape elections is because they shape people's beliefs and thinkings, thinking. And those belief and thinkings, thinking, <laughs> I'm just going to stay with it. Those beliefs and thinkings uh, actually shape Actions. 
I think we're waking up from a time where we're kind of like, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Just don't believe it too strongly. You believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe. And I think we're waking up from that delusion saying, no, what you believe matters. It has consequences. All truth, one author says, all truth is public truth. So what you believe, what you're buying into, what you're thinking does manifest in the world. It matters what I believe. What you believe and think matters so much. And so I think it's important for us as a church to know the basics, to know the essence of this tradition. Some of us are new to the tradition. Some of us have been around and maybe are a little bored by the tradition. Some of us are really animated and excited about being a part of this, but don't like the word tradition. <laughs> so wherever we're at, I think it would be a good moment for us to dig in. Fourth reason, unity. If you've been around at all, you know we've been talking about the one, two, threes of theology. And if you don't know what that means, it's totally fine. Um, there's stuff on, on our website about the one, two, threes of theology. We're saying our number one, the core of what we're committing to, is the Apostles' Creed. As a church, we want to make our core the Apostles' Creed. So if we're saying that as a church, it would be good for us to know what that number one is. It would be good to know what the Apostles' Creed is and is not saying. And so we want to spend some time with it. Fifth reason is this little phrase that I picked up somewhere this week. I don't remember where, but it just it keeps working on me. It's this phrase. Liturgical acts store prayers in our bodies. Liturgical acts store prayers in our bodies. And it immediately made me think of Oma. This is Amy's grandmother. How old is Oma, Amy? Is she 89? Kim? How old is Oma? 88. Okay, her two grandchildren here are not sure. Um, but Oma... Often when we're in Abbotsford, we pop in to see Oma. And Oma's struggling with dementia. And maybe you've either walked with someone or experienced that. And it's an awful thing. It's a painful thing. Because there's so much loss there. There's loss. Well, what kind of loss? Well, it's actually loss of events and story. Which means a loss of identity. And all of that's occurring, why? Because of a loss of memory. And so it's hard. And so we go to see Oma, and in those conversations, we'll circle through. Sometimes uh, we'll talk about the same thing seven times. It's like, we just talked about this, like, literally 90 seconds ago. But our kids have learned, they're so great to talk about. Yeah, I go to, I go to Lord Strathcona School. I'm in grade five. And, and, and that's part of communing with Oma. But Oma's very favorite thing to do every time we're there is she wants to sing. She wants to sing. She does not need the hymnal, but I do. Okay? So here's a little video here of Oma.
and go, she, it doesn't matter the song. She can do five, six verses deep by memory. Why? Because she's stored these prayers in her body. And in a season of significant loss where she's just lost her husband. And she's losing her memories. There are things that cannot be taken from her because they've been stored in her body. This is the fruit of walking into the future backward. This is the fruit of storing prayers. And so I just want to encourage you. If you're a place in your faith where you're like, why am I? I don't even know why I'm here this Sunday. And I don't know why in a few moments I'm going to come back to this table. I, I want to encourage you. You're storing things in your body. Keep going. Keep going. Keep storing them. And the, these will bear fruit. And it's also an invitation to think, what else might I want to store in there? And so when we drive home, we often marvel about Oma's memory. So that's what's happening. And then silently, what I'm doing inside is going, what will come out of me at 88? It's a bit of a wake-up call for me. I'm going, what, what, will, what songs will I be singing when I'm Oma's age? What am I storing in there? So... As we come to a close, Paul urges believers saying, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you are taught by us, either by word or of word of mouth or by our letter. Paul's saying, I want to pass something on to you that's living and it's from the past. It's living and it's from the past. One author says, Tradition is not to preserve the ashes, but to pass on the flame. And so as a church, as we're seeking to learn what it means to welcome the Holy Spirit, might one way of welcoming the Holy Spirit be to welcome the tradition? I often think of welcoming the Holy Spirit maybe means like 10 songs in a row, which would be great. But it also, it also may be one of the ways we welcome the Holy Spirit is through knowing the tradition. Maybe, maybe God will do something, maybe, through looking at the Apostles' Creed in these coming weeks. May that be a way to welcome the Holy Spirit. So then, isn't it interesting, as we come to the table, that what Jesus gives is a core practice. And he says, take this bread, whenever you do, take it, break it, and do this in remembrance of me. Gives a core practice that is is all about identity that's informed by the story that's animated by memory. So that's what we do. We come to the table as an act of memory to stay connected to the story. And I'm not sure whatever you need to receive this morning as we come here, but it is a moment to receive a fresh word of welcome. Just Maybe just a fresh word from the Father, I see you. You're not the first and you're not the last, but you're still, I see you. It could be forgiveness, reconciliation, but come to the table and to, and to receive afresh. Let's rehearse the gospel together as we come to the table liturgy now. I invite you to say these words where indicated in bold. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of His great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin and death and to renew all things.